From the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm Andy Cullison. And I'm Kate Berry. For each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. And by the way, case is just an ethicist word for story. Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise. But as an ethicist, I can explain how you've probably signed a lot of morally binding contracts that you didn't realize you had. And if you'd like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll consider doing that. So we're back again with a Frameworks episode. What's the framework today, Andy? Today we are talking about social agreements. Okay, so we've already talked about consequences and inner thoughts and foundational ideals. How are those things different from social agreements? So the way in which those are different is that there are some philosophers who think that all of morality is basically grounded in agreements. Now, obvious ones are going to be what you call actual agreements, like contracts, promises, things of that nature. But it'd be a very sparse ethical worldview if you only counted actual explicit agreements between people as what gives us our moral obligations. So these folks that you sometimes call them social contract theorists, they think there are other ways in which we are basically in agreement with each other, in a sense, about how we ought to behave. And the, those kinds of agreements might fall into what you might call implicit agreements on the one hand, or hypothetical agreements on the other. And some people think that these implicit or hypothetical agreements can be morally binding on us. So these are things that we haven't necessarily signed a piece of paper or said, I promise I will do this, or I agree that I will do this, but they might still be binding on us. Let's start with the implicit ones. I'll I'll give you an example of that, and you can kind of see what these folks might be thinking. So imagine you're a server in a restaurant, and let's say I come in, and I'm just going to pretend to be naive about things. So I walk in, and you say, would you like a table, sir? And I say, oh, I would love a table. And then let's say it's a steakhouse. You're like, would you like a steak? And I'm like, I'd love a steak. Would would you like a beer to go with that steak? I'd like, I'd love a beer to go with that steak. And you bring out all this stuff and you haven't really even given me a menu or anything because we just, I said what I wanted. And then I eat the steak, I drink the beer, and then I get up and start to walk out and you stop me and say, whoa, whoa, you, you haven't paid. Now, suppose I did something like this. What do you mean? Hey, I just walked into this building. And you just said, would you like to sit? And I was like, I'd love to sit. I was tired. And then you kindly offered me this steak. And I was like, this is wonderful. And you kindly offered me this beer. But I didn't, we didn't talk about price. We didn't do any of that. You just, I came in here and you started offering me things. Like we never agreed on me paying for this. Now imagine I said something like that. What would your reaction be? Well, It feels like it might be a science fiction movie where you are literally an alien from a different planet that doesn't understand social norms or that it is someone who is pretending that they don't understand what it means to go to a restaurant and are trying to use that 
possible ignorance to be like, I thought you were just giving me a steak and beer. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that. That's sort of this example where there's this implicit agreement that some people think are are in play. And these kinds of things are all over the place in our society and culture, not just with like ethics things. There are like norms or expectations that just naturally evolve in our culture and society. And like no one ever really tells you what those are. So like language rules are like this, right? We can pretty quickly learn what the rules of our language are without anyone ever having to tell us just by observing how other people do it. And in fact, for native speakers, it can be really, really difficult to name the rule. It's often easier for someone who has learned the language in a classroom to say, oh, it's this rule. And that's why we say it that way. And that native speakers wouldn't maybe have even noticed that there was a rule because they've learned it so deeply and it's it's implicit. They never were told, oh, we we don't we only say this or we never say that. Exactly. That's a great example. In fact, folks in the social contract tradition, they like to draw on this analogy quite a lot. Like, look, Here's an example of like rules that can crop up that we've all sort of in mutual agreement on, but like no one ever said what they were. Right. So things like this happen in sports all the time. There are what you might call unwritten rules in sports. These are things that don't show up in the rule book, but they are norms or expectations that you just sometimes kind of learn. And you could, you could learn that they are the rules without anyone ever really having to tell you that they're the rules. So like one example in soccer, if the other team is injured and you have the ball, the unwritten rule or the courtesy is you kick the ball out of bounds. Now, by kicking the ball out of bounds, the other team gets possession of the ball. So you did that. You did them a solid right by kicking the ball out of bounds. So the clock would stop so their player could get taken care of. That's that's why you kick it out of bounds. It stops. It stops play. Oh, okay. So you kick it out of bounds, that team that you just did a solid now has the ball. The norm is they give it back to you, right? So instead of trying to throw it into their guys, they throw it to you. I see. But if they broke that norm, if you were trying to help them by stopping the clock so their player could get treatment or something, and then when things started again, they just kept the ball. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They threw it in and went and scored a goal real quick. Yeah. I could see that you might be upset that you, oh, we're not following the same set of rules, even though that rule is not in the rule book. Right. And, and, and they wouldn't be able to declare, they'd be like, what? There's where, where in the rule book does it say that, you know, we have to play this way, right? Like that's not going to fly. So that's one kind of agreement where you may have like signed the social contract without quite realizing it. The, the other kind is what you might call a hypothetical agreement. So an example I like to use is let's say you and I decide we're going to quit our jobs and we're going to go prospect for gold in Alaska or something. So we rent our plot of land and we've agreed that we're going to split the gold, whatever we get, we've we've agreed we're going to split it 50-50. And then I go over and I start tending to one side of the field and you start tending over the other side of the field. And it's a big field. So we're like not going to see each other, you know, for like a week or so because we're like operating two separate camps Mm -hmm. and we come back and we start to show what we found and there's all these bags of gold and behind me you see some bags of diamonds you're like whoa what are those diamonds back there I'm like oh those are the diamonds I found and you'd be like well great where's my share of that and if I were to say whoa 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 like we we agreed to split gold 50 50 but we didn't say anything about the, the diamonds 
And I'd say, we didn't know there were diamonds out here. Exactly, right? It's not, yeah, if we had entertained the question, uh, what do we do if we find diamonds in addition to gold? Don't you think we reasonably would have said, okay, that's 50-50 too, right? The fact that we didn't actually agree on what to do with diamonds doesn't give you a moral pass. So that, that's that's another example of a kind of hypothetical agreement. Yeah. Okay, so just to kind of recap, so social agreement folks think that social agreements between people can be binding, but they think there are different kinds of quote-unquote social agreements. There are the actual ones, contracts and promises, but there are these implicit ones where our ethics sort of functions like the rules of language or unwritten rules in sports, like these things that if you grew up in our society, you just know they are the rules and you know that we've all agreed to behave this way, even though you haven't like explicitly written it out. And that's implicit agreements. And then hypothetical agreements are, you know, the sort of agreements that, you know, all reasonable people would agree to if they had had a chance to consider it kind of thing. What kind of implicit or hypothetical agreements might we see in a workplace situation? Well, I think um, a big one, we often talk about different organizations having a kind of different quote unquote culture. If someone comes in and they don't like fit with the culture, there's this kind of expectation like, no, this is this is our culture. This is how we do things. Like you might people be like, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. Well, why do we do it that way? And someone might say, that's just how we've always done it. Right. That's that's sort of the idea. It's funny I on that. Like, that's just how we've always done it. Someone might look at that as like, whoa, why is that's just how we've always done it a reason for me to like play along? Yeah, I'm kind of surprised. I would think that that's maybe not a very good reason. It doesn't sound necessarily like it's been very thought out to say that's just how we've always done it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when people say that they really are being kind of unreflective and they're like, that's just what we do. And then like there was no questioning of it. But I think sometimes I want to be a little bit more charitable with people who say things like this. I, I kind of think what they're doing in their own way is they're sort of appealing to some kind of implicit social agreement in the organization. It's just sort of like, look, it's not that they're saying that's just how we've always done it. It's sort of more like, look, this is how we've always done it. And we're all cool with it being that way. Right. They don't use the word agreement, but they're basically saying, look, we've all agreed that this is how things should go, is I think what they're saying. Right. We as a workplace like our more casual dress. And so that is our culture norm. And we don't appreciate you coming in here saying that I need to like put on a button shirt. Right. Exactly. That something like that could be a, an example. But in addition to culture, there can be all sorts of unwritten rules that these these are just things we don't do. I imagine in organizations where you have sales teams and and those things get kind of competitive there may be certain kinds of norms or expectations i don't know like maybe maybe in car sales you know like the person who goes up and first makes contact with a potential buyer it's like they get to be the one to sell the car kind of thing I've never worked in a car dealership. So so maybe that actually is literally written down. There's like a policy, like first first contact. But suppose that's not the case, right? Then you could imagine an unwritten rule cropping up. Again, because sales can get competitive, there might be other kinds of unwritten rules about how that competition is going to go, 
right? What's okay to do in the spirit of competition and what's not okay to do may never ever actually get written down, but there might still end up being norms there. They sound like things that we might call courtesy and etiquette. Those are kinds of rules, often not written down, that we try to abide by. Someone who's not behaving all that well might say, well, you don't have to do those things. They're a suggestion. It would be nice, but I'm competitive. I want to get this sale. But if the group in general is one that believes in the courtesy or the etiquette, that would be acting against the group's wishes. Yeah, no, actually, I think courtesy and etiquette norms and rules are a a good thing to be keeping before the mind's eye because those sort of operate or arise out of these kinds of implicit agreements in a lot of cases. One other kind of example of agreements in the workplace is a a lot of organizations will state what their quote-unquote core values are, right? And in virtue of stating what your core values are, you might think that there's an implicit expectation that everybody live up to those, right? Or that, you know, we all do things, you know, with an eye toward, are they uh, reflective of these core values? There's an implicit expectation that we're going to stick with all these kinds of things. And so someone might say, what? I'd like, why would anyone expect me to do that? It's like, well, I mean, no one ever came and told you to do the thing, but, but not doing the thing. If you look at what our core values are, it seems like the logical conclusion is this is the thing you should do, right? Something like that. So if you were the CEO of a company that said it cared about the environment and sustainability, but you took your helicopter to work every day, it may not be explicitly against the rules, but it certainly seems against the spirit of what your company says its values are. Yeah. If if the CEO were to say something like, well, look, that's just my private personal life. I should be free to live however I want. It's like, well... I think as a CEO of a company that pledges this thing, there's kind of an implicit, reasonable expectation that you yourself live it out. Well, Andy, that gets me thinking about what seems to me to be the, the thing that's really tricky about social agreements, which is not all people agree and not all social groups agree. What if either an individual with outsized power or a majority of people in a workplace prefer a norm, but then there either are more people with less power or just a minority who's being forced to live, let's say, in a workplace norm that they wouldn't have agreed to. What do you do then? This is a really good question. And I think one of my favorite philosophers actually has an interesting thought experiment designed to figure out what's just and fair. He has a thought experiment that's designed to take precisely what you just mentioned into account, where you've got these dominant groups, and if social agreements are determined by like what a majority agrees, well, what if you've got these dominant, even oppressive groups? And so he he proposed a thought experiment that he called the, the veil of ignorance. He was using it for politics. He says, imagine if you want to figure out what the social contracts are, what's fair, you want to think about what reasonable people would agree to. And you want to think about what they would agree to, but stripping away as much of their identity as you can. So he's like, imagine you were like starting society fresh. You're like up in platonic heaven, a disembodied soul. You're about to get a body in this new society, but you're going to do your constitutional convention before you get put into your new body. Right. And here's the thing. So you don't know 
what your advantages are going to be. You don't know what your skin color is going to be, your gender, your race, your ethnicity. Your, you, don't, you don't know any of those things. And you also don't know which of those groups are even going to have power. And he said, what kinds of rules would that group agree to? And, and what he said was, well, you'd, you'd say, well, I, gosh, almost everyone would be like, I want to make sure that whatever the rules are, they ensure that the persons who are the least well off still have a pretty good life, right? Because the idea is you'd hedge your bets. You'd be like, well, whatever it is, let's make sure that the least well off still have it pretty good. And then he says, you, you would imagine certain kinds of policies that would crop up like equal access and equal opportunity to, you know, for education, for resources, fair wages, certain kinds of protections for marginalized groups, right? Some kind of very basic social safety net, right? So that, it, you know, no matter what happens, you still end up pretty okay. What the idea is when dominant groups either explicitly team up or, you know, implicitly team up to, to shape culture, they can't strip away those identities. And so if you strip that away, you, you arrive at things that this philosopher thinks would be more just and fair. So Kate, can you think of a way in which you might apply this thought experiment to make some judgments about what workplace policies you might think would be good to have? Yeah, I can think of one, I'm, I'm imagining this disembodied CEO building their company from platonic heaven, but they don't know when they get to earth, what job they're going to have, that something like the CEOs that make more than 300 times what their employees make, maybe that gap would start to decrease. They would get closer together because, yeah, you might be the CEO who makes 300 times what a normal employee makes, but you also may be that normal employee. Exactly. Imagine all the people in a company were going to get whisked off to platonic heaven, get dropped back in, but they don't know what they're going to come back as, right? I guarantee you those disembodied souls in platonic heaven would agree on some things that don't happen a lot in the contemporary workplace. And I don't mean to just pick on CEOs. This could be any group that gets benefits that others don't. Like, let's say you work at a place where the sales team gets to do whatever they want, flexible hours, bonuses, that sort of thing. And everyone else sort of has to pick up the slack that supports their benefits. Something like that might disappear if you're in this platonic heaven and you don't know what department you'll end up in. Where I think this really impacts is anytime you think there's an issue with equity in the workplace, some people are the haves and some people are the have nots. And that disparity is really distressing, right? It's like quality of life when you're a have versus a have not is like really big. Then you'd say, look, if we were to decide how this would go and we didn't know which side we were going to be on, we would expect that policies would be a bit different. Right. I'll, I'll say one thing. This is one where I think we're getting into territory where there's disagreement about whether or not these kinds of things could even be morally binding. Right. Most people recognize rights. Most people recognize consequences. Most people recognize motives and intentions. We're, this is our first one where people are like, do I really have to take this one all that seriously? Do I really have to like if if I think it's something that people would have agreed to, am I really allowed to like hold someone's feet to the fire over that? Uh -huh. This is an important part about the frameworks is that 
it's important to learn them because some people, their moral intuitions and their value structure are going to respond to this and be like, yes, this seems right. And so it's got to be part of the equation. It's got to be part of what you're talking about. And even if you're not super certain that you're on board with this being an important way to make moral decisions, other people are going to think it's an important way to make moral decisions. And so if you're trying to reach a shared understanding or grapple with a complicated moral dilemma, you could really miss something if you're not being very reflective and thinking about this one. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. And I'm Kate Berry. If you have a dilemma or tension that you're dealing with in the workplace, email me at katherineberry at depaw.edu, and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. I really hope you take Kate up on that. I also hope you can take some of what we discussed here and get it to work. If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best place for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics. 